This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. What a dollar means to me, winning a dollar and the good feeling I get of making a dollar is not as good a feeling as the bad feeling that comes from losing a dollar. It's just who I am. Lessons learned from 30 years at the helm of FPA Crescent Fund, our rare interview with Stephen Romick. Funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Baird, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. This week we are featuring part two of our rare interview with great investor Stephen Romick, portfolio manager of the FPA Crescent Fund, which he founded 30 years ago. Morningstar gives the fund a gold analyst rating, noting its focus on capital preservation with an unorthodox approach. It honored Romick and his team with its Allocation Fund Manager of the Year in 2013, citing their capital preservation and strong stewardship. Since its 1993 inception, FBA Crescent has met its mandate of generating equity-like returns with less risk than the market, delivering an annualized performance of nearly 10%, falling less in down markets and recovering much faster after market declines. Earlier this year, Romick was invited to deliver the keynote speech at Morningstar's annual investment conference to reflect on his three decades of investing. I asked him to share some of his insights with us, starting with how he endured and succeeded through multiple market cycles, including the 1990s tech bubble, the great financial crisis, the COVID sell-off, and 2022's market debacle. He said, first, consider what can go wrong. I I think if you... You need to always look at things from two sides, what can go right as well as what can go wrong. Just the, the nature of, of a value investor, at least this value investor, is that considering what can go wrong is just about losing money, about trying to protect yourself and protect you know, your capital and protect our, our clients' capital. So we always think about balancing what can go right and what can go wrong, but it's really important to place a lot of weight, at least for me and our team, to you know where can we be wrong and any thesis we have where we really like a certain company or a certain asset security, we're, we're very mindful of taking our, our bullish point of view and then inverting our thesis to, you know, to, to positions like, okay, what if we got it wrong? What, what, what can you know, happen that could, could cause us to, to lose money? And how do you do that? You know, if you think about businesses and how they've evolved over the last you know, you know, 20 years, there's been more disintermediation that we've seen than any other, other point in time in history. I mean, more businesses have, have, have fallen by the wayside. And so when we look at a business, we think, well, what can go wrong? We think about what competitors are doing, people within the industry today and people who are new entrants you know, to that industry. You know, they're coming in. So if you think about businesses that you look at retail and you look at what, how Amazon came into the market and upended you know, the laws of retail. Took, right. you know, took brick and mortar and sent it up into, into the digital you know, universe. Why some companies were you know, succeeded versus others that didn't. So if you look at businesses you know, that 
that did fare relatively well after a lot of capital investment and false starts along the way would include Walmart, would include Target. But why didn't Sears, you know, succeed? What did they do wrong? So mm -hmm. when we looked at different, you know, retailers in our portfolio, we thought about what could go wrong. We owned a fair amount of retail and we ended up, you know, selling all of our retail. And now the mistake that we made, you know, error of omission was not actually having bought Amazon coming out of the great financial crisis. Uh, we were very mindful of what Amazon was doing to the retail landscape. And we just, you know, uh, unfortunately leaned away from retail, but not into Amazon. And the same is true of, of the banking industry. I started out back in the 1980s working as a, a, a bank and thrift analyst for, a, for an investment partnership, among other things. But that was an, a significant area of focus. That was back when there were almost 20,000 lending institutions in this country rather than sub 5,000 or so today. For somebody to, you know, to not want to own banks when I understood them so well going back in, uh, you know, 20 years ago, that was pretty significant, but we saw what was happening, how, how banks have become very expensive, how there were lots of bad loans you know, on the books, and we saw the, the risk profile of a lot of, of off-balance sheet leverage you know, that had come into banks and other financial institutions, the likes of Lehman Brothers, et cetera. So we took what had been a fairly significant financial you know, exposure, you know, largely banks, and, and actually took it down to zero in the fund and actually were were slightly negative, hardly worth mentioning, but we were short a small amount of Lehman Brothers. Banks have been, from a traditional value investing point of view, uh, they've been one of the areas that has been considered kind of a mainstay of that. So that was another kind of trend that you were bucking, right, in deciding not to get into the banks or not? I, I think that in the way you're framing the question, I think it is taking on this philosophical construct of this definition of value being one of low multiple, low price mm -hmm. to book multiples and low PE multiples. And I think that's a, that's a little dangerous. And one of our, you know, you know, our areas of success, I would argue, over the last you know, three decades has been just continuing to evolve and, and call it continuous learning, challenging ourselves to be better. And just because something trades at a low valuation, that doesn't mean it's a value because what's that business going to look like in five years and or 10 years? And so a lot of these banks were just don't didn't don't offer, you know, good returns in equity, don't afford an attractive risk reward opportunity for the investor um, to the extent that in some cases they've been binary. Just look most recently at the likes of uh, Silicon Valley, you know, bank or First Republic Bank. Now, I'm not trying to paint, you know, financials with a broad brush, but value to us means investing with a margin of safety. And just a margin of safety just doesn't mean a low valuation. I mean, it's, I think it's reasonable to argue that a company trading at 30 times earnings, growing that, those earnings 50% a year for the next five years, that would be a value if mm -hmm. that company actually delivered a 50% you know, compounded earnings growth over the next five years. That inarguably would be a value. Stephen, for the seventh edition of the investment classic Graham and Dodd Security Analysis, you were asked to write an introduction to a chapter about your evolution as a value investor. How have you evolved? I think the largest theme within what I wrote in this chapter intro is really this idea of continuous learning, uh, this idea of being a value investor, you know, means to focus on a margin of safety, trying to protect capital. And you aren't protecting capital if you buy something at a low PE 
or in a low price to book for a business that is going to disappear. I mean, Sears looked like a value investment and did not end up mm -hmm. you know, performing quite so well, as everybody knows. So the margin of safety earlier on in my career, having been schooled in the earlier Graham and Dottian you know, uh, mode of security analysis, which is protecting yourself with a balance sheet. So buying something below book, uh, book value or, or ha looking for hidden assets and being aware of, of hidden liabilities you know, might, that might be off balance sheet, contingent right. liabilities and such. And what I realized over time was that the value of the business was going to offer me, afford me great protection. And I, I think I'm a slow learner because <laughs> I had Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger decades before who had already migrated in that direction. Right. And they migrated in that direction before I even entered the business. And so shame on me for not being you know, so aware of, of, of two of the better investors in history and, and of their own evolution. So I'm, I'm a slow learner, but I got there. And I think it's one of the things that helped us over time is thought about that margin of safety, that, that protection moving from the balance sheet to the business. So thinking about how that business is gonna perform over the next five to 10 years and what will what kind of tailwinds might they have? How they how might they that business be disrupted, is uh, something that we really spend a lot of time focusing on today. One of the you know your major lessons that you have you mentioned in a speech at Morningstar, reflecting on your thirty year career, was that uh, and one of them was do nothing most of the time. So is is that is that a kind of a recent <laughs> um, maxim uh, that that you don't need to be as active. No, that's always been the case. Going back to my to to the inception of the fund uh, in 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 1993, I've always was mindful that you know if there's not an opportunity, why why press? And if there right. is an opportunity, lean in, press. So we've all that's always been you know part of my core you know uh, DNA. You mentioned your uh, you know aversion uh, to losses and and the margin of safety and. I know one of the things that you've talked about is protecting capital is in your DNA and your partner's DNA. Uh, so the aversion to losses, can you just explain that? Why that is in your DNA? I, I, I can't, honestly, I, I can't explain why it's in my DNA. You're born this way. Right. You're born, you know, the idea of the utility of a dollar, what, what a dollar means to me, winning a dollar and the good feeling I get of making a dollar is not as good a feeling as the bad feeling that comes from losing a dollar. It's just who I am. But your partners feel the same way. Brian and Mark are of the same cut from the same cloth. Is this aversion to losses? We, we are. We are. We we have. Uh, we're accepting of of price movement. Mm -hmm. We're accepting of mark to markets of our and our securities. Something that you know the the value. Of, of a business doesn't move around as much as the stock prices do. So we always anchor to what we think the business business you know value is. And so we are birds, we're different birds, but we're, we're birds of a feather. Uh, how important uh, is it also to be able to invest uh, across different capital structures? And also you've, uh, over the 30 year period, you've also went kind of from domestic to more global. So how important have those changes and that kind of expansion of your portfolio been to your success? Well, this fund at its inception had the charter to invest across the capital structure. So that was, that's been there from day one. 
However, as you correctly point out, it's become more expensive as, as time has gone on, where it was stocks and prefer, you know, it was, it was common stocks, preferred stocks, junior debt, senior debt, um, convertible bonds. And then it you know, continued to expand to uh, private credit, to bank loans, uh, moved offshore, did more, we've done a lot more over outside the United States. We've, we've incorporated certain derivatives in the portfolio. And I would say the importance of it is that if you were a value investor, why be pigeonholed into just doing one thing, you know, investing in one asset class? Value shows up in all kinds of places. It can show up and, and afford a better risk reward opportunity in, in a distressed mortgage loan at one point or in a common stock at a different point. It could show up in, in shipping, uh, you know, having some shipping assets that mm -hmm. we had that has performed uh, quite well that Brian Sumo, my partner, was the architect of. You know, it could show up in different places. And I think that if one's looking for value, why be pigeonholed into this one narrow construct of, of U.S. small cap, mid cap, or large cap equities? I'm, I'm sitting in a building, you know, that's got 20 some odd stories. Call that a mid cap stock. Mm -hmm. I could go look at the building that's next door that's three stories. I look at the building in Century City that's, you know, that's 70 stories. Now it's a large cap stock. Next door is a small cap stock. I, why, the analysis is going to be similar. I can look at this, the, this office building, you know, in the United Kingdom or in France or in Hong Kong. I can look at the debt of this building. Should that become attractive? So the, asset, the analysis of the asset is the same regardless. Of, of as to whether it's small, medium, or large, regardless if it's an equity or debt, the structure, you know, is, is just is just different. Right. It's it's a lot more challenging to have you know that broad uh, mandate, right? Because uh, you've really got to be on your toes and have a lot of people looking at a lot of different things. It, it is more challenging on the one end to consider such such breadth, which I think is the the framing of your question. But I actually find it less challenging because it makes it more exciting to come to the office every day. There's something to work on, more likely something to work on that we could get excited about to put into the portfolio, as private credit has been for the last decade. You know, we've 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 invested uh, a portfolio over the last decade of private credit, and you know we've delivered returns in the 14 plus percent range, and have not had a loss to date. You know, in our private credit loans mm -hmm. inside of inside of the you know the FPA Crescent Fund, but. To focus on the question as to how we spend each day and, and harness our time, you know, we're just looking for the better businesses of the world as a starting point in equities. And we're looking for where there's dislocation, you know, across, you know, regions and sectors and asset classes. Back to the kind of the, the insights and the, uh, you mentioned four standout lessons uh, in your Morningstar speech, again, in re reprising the 30 years uh, at FBA Crescent. And um, one of them, the, the first one was determine the strategy that works for you and stick with it. Was that something that you, you know, that again, that evolved, that you learned as you went along or, and, and, and to tell us what the strategy that works for you is? Well, being a, being a value investor, making sure we invest with the margin of safety, you know, as we, as we discussed at the outset, is a strategy that works for us. Now, if we find assets that are, if, you know, that are, if we're having a problem finding investments that afford such a margin of safety, we end up with cash by default. And that's just, you know, who, who we are. And that, and, and, and not, and having the courage of conviction to not have to go and do 
what's working, invest in what's working, is, is a hallmark of, of, of the way we operate. Right, and, and that, that's another one of your, you know, your four kind of standout lessons was, uh, you know, don't run with the crowd. And the reason for that is? I don't want to suggest the crowd's always wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, the point I was making in this, in this speech, um, you know, in this keynote I did at Morningstar, was just that just because everybody's doing something doesn't mean you should do it. You've got to sit back, evaluate what makes sense for you and for your, your, your portfolio. And hopefully, you know, we as investors invest alongside of our clients. And hopefully there's a few investors out there who are like-minded who want to invest alongside of us. Right, and there really is a difference between what can be working now, Stephen, right, and versus what's going to work for the long term. Yeah, I mean, arbitraging, arbi you know, for us, we, we think about, we're, we're arbitragers in a sense. We're arbitraging perception and reality. This company over here is perceived to have this great growth over the next 10 years, you know, but the reality is maybe it isn't, so we're going to avoid that company. This, com this other company is perceived that's going to not going to have a lot of growth, and yet, you know, we, th we, we, we see good growth opportunities available to it with a good management team and intelligent use of cash flow. So we're going to end up owning that company, holding that position. The other of the four lessons, look at each new day with fresh eyes and continuous learning. How do you do that? How do you keep <laughs> that sort of enthusiasm and openness? Uh, you know, how do, how do you not settle back into the habits that most of us do? I don't even know that it's enthusiasm. It's about mm -hmm. having a having a clear process, being open to learning constantly. I mean, it's it's why we why I read the paper every day, even even things that are not investment related. You know, it could be about music, it could be about art, it could be you know reading about reading the sports page. I like to I like to you know learn and see what's happening out in the world and you know be a person of the world. Right? And I live in this world, but but this world is changing. A musician that is very good right now, that is popular, may not be popular in the future. Mm -hmm. For me, it's just you know trying to figure out, you know who, trying to you know, discover something new. I like that when it comes to you know music, for example. I like that when it comes to investing, looking for something new, looking for something that, that is 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 the enthusiasm I, I, for me that I bring to it is trying to find something that that people aren't willing to commit to. There's maybe there's fear around it, but there's some excitement. So I get enthusiastic about, well, the world believes this, but I actually, I don't care what they believe. I like this business. I want to invest in this business. It might not be a great metaphor. It came to me as I'm speaking, but I might like a certain, you know, singer songwriter, but I don't care if everybody else likes them. I like listening to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get, I get some flack inside my family for still listening to, to Neil Diamond. I like Neil Diamond. <laughs> there, there are some eternals in life, right? At least for, for you. For me. Yeah, for you, exactly. Um, you know, 30 years, half your life you mentioned um, that, you know, you've spent half of your life at FBA Crescent. So what's the plan for the next 30 years? Um, you know, it's funny. We wrote our shareholder letter. We, we actually, you know, put a line in there and, you know, could be perceived as a little flippant, but we genuinely mean it like, you know, the next 30 years, right? Or we said, sorry, we said the first 30 years. Uh -huh. Yeah, because we've got... We've got a process we think is is a replicable process that 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 you know as long as we insist on challenging ourselves individually and challenging each other 
uh, I think that we are in a good position to do to well to do well over the next 30 years as well, as long as we execute on on this belief set that we are, that that is that is fundamental to us. Now, we, and I know the next 30 years there will be surprises along the way, but I don't think it's going to be a lot that's really going to astonish us. I wrote something a number of years back about don't be surprised, right? There's always going to be something that pops up. I mean, I, I mean, I we didn't anticipate. You know, 9/11, but mm -hmm. we always knew there could be terrorism on our shores. We didn't anticipate, you know, COVID, but we always were aware that, you know, a, a pandemic is something that that could uh, come a cropper, if you will. And right. so, there's going to be these things in the future. And the important thing is to respond to them and and understand not what's happened in the moment. When we're committing capital, we want to think about what that capital, what we've invested, and what it might look like a few years from now. And if we always have that mindset, we're always looking forward a few years and thinking about what we're buying today or, or not owning today you know, in terms of what it might look, things, how things might look in the future, if we can continue to do that, you know, I think we'll, we'll do just fine. I mean, 30 years from now, I'll be, I'll be 90. You know, um, Mark and Brian will still be old men, but I'm not, uh, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, Stephen, one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. Is, is there any one long-term investment uh, that you would make at this I point? Don't, I'm, I'm sensitive to, to mentioning any one name, particularly mm -hmm. in the context for a long-term portfolio, because right. you make a recommendation. We've had this long. We've had this this discussion today about continuous learning, keeping an open mind, coming in every day, and being aware of new information that that comes that comes across our desks. Well, if I make a recommendation and then new information comes across my desk, you know, uh, uh, six months from now, then you know, we might not own that security anymore. We might make a different decision. So I'm sensitive to, to this idea that that you know there there is nothing that's permanent. We operate you know in this with, with a grayscale. You know, there's nothing that's black and white in the world. And you know, businesses that you're convinced will never, never fail. You know, break down. Right. Can end up breaking down. Happens time and time again. The IBM of the 70s is not the IBM of 2023. You know, the the Sears of the 1970s is 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 it, you know doesn't exist today. So we just are, the world changes around us, and and the companies we invest in have to evolve and change too. We I mean, and there's no such thing as standing still. If if other people are changing around you and you're standing still, you know, it's like that movie Bill Murray movie Stripes, where you know somebody's you know. Nobody really volunteered, but everybody took a step back, leaving two people forward. Right? right. I mean, if you're not moving forward, you may as well be moving backwards. An asset class. I think there's interesting things to do. I think that I think that like biotech. We are so not investor, you know, you know, experts in biotech. So I, I, I want to be very, very careful, and it's not something we've currently expressed in our portfolio because we aren't investors in it. But mm -hmm. I think about biotech as an asset, as, as a sector, and I said, okay, there's two significant changes that that have happened. You know, over the last you know you know two decades, that should you know drive some good success for that asset class. And again, investing with those people who can do it well, which is not which is not us. Uh, but the two changes are one, we mapped the human genome, you know, 20 years ago, 21, 22 years ago, and since then it was like identifying the parts to to a car. Picture the parts of the car being laid across the floor of a, of an 18th century you know dwelling. You, know, you wouldn't know what a crankshaft was from a camshaft, from a battery, from a catalytic converter to. You would have recognized a, you know, a wheel, but you wouldn't have recognized the tire with the vulcanized rubber. So right. for the last 20 years, we've been identifying what those parts of the car do individually, 
and then how they work together. And then we've inflected and we're seeing some significant drug development as a result. And then add on top of that, the, the bench strength in the labs has increased dramatically because of AI. I speak with a certain amount of passion because I'm on the, on the international board of the Weizmann Institute in Israel, and I have some familiarity with this. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty amazing, you know, what's happening, you know, in the labs. And so with those two things, I think you're going to see some pretty significant opportunities. And so one can do it via ETFs and, and do, or do the work of individual companies. It's, again, that is not our area of expertise. But we right. are mindful of what's happening in, in, in this kind of health tech landscape. And we're looking, to, we're looking for opportunities and trying to figure out ways to express it you know, in the portfolio. Although here, you know, up to this point, we've not been terribly successful in that regard. Well, you know, speaking of continuous learning, so that this is what right, keeps you motivated learning and also potentially adding uh, some businesses to your portfolio. So Stephen Robick, thank you so much for joining us on Welltrack and congratulations on 30 years at FPA Crescent. Uh, it's been a remarkable run. Thank you, thank you very much. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the close of every wealth talk, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's recommendation picks up on one of Stephen Romick's primary investment lessons from the past 30 years. This week's action point is determine what strategy works best for you and stick with it, whether you direct it or delegate it to someone else. It should be a replicable process that you can execute in all market environments. It should sync with your personality so you don't abandon it in times of market stress. It can help you stay focused and set investment boundaries no matter what the market climate, and it can protect you from FOMO, fear of missing out during crazes. Knowing the investment discipline that you are most comfortable with can also help you avoid constant self-guessing that is an investor's plague and also help you sleep well at night. Well, next week, Medicare expert Katie Votava helps us avoid common and costly mistakes with Medicare. In this week's extra feature, Stephen Romick shares what he loves about his job 30 years in. Please follow us on Facebook and our YouTube channel. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Have an outstanding weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one. Thank you.